is Our American Stories, and for the hour, a uniquely American story for our This Day in History series. And on this day in history, Annie Oakley died. She was a shooting star, a magician whose magic wand was a gun. Right-handed, left-handed, on a horse, through a mirror. She couldn't miss. At a time when women were only expected to fire up the oven, Annie Oakley fired her way to fame as the world's greatest sharpshooter. In her personal life, she was a sharpshooter as well. She was devoted to her marriage and to her faith. She was a Christian, and it's no wonder that Annie Oakley inspired scores of books and movies and the Broadway musical, Annie Get Your Gun. But as you're about to hear, the reality, well, it's even better. A fierce blizzard swept into western Ohio. Phoebe Ann Moses, the fifth surviving child in a poor Quaker farming family, waited for her beloved father to come home from the mill, 15 miles away. It was midnight when Jacob Moses finally returned. His hands were frozen solid, his speech gone. He never recovered and died a few months later. Phoebe Ann, or Annie, was just five years old. The family soon lost the farm. Bills piled up. They were destitute. To ease the burden, Annie's mother Susan had to sell the family farm and pet cow just to pay the medical and funeral bills. Here's the grandniece of Annie Oakley, Bess Edwards. Annie stepped in and she saved the family. They were hungry. Rather than be hungry, what are you going to do? If you have a talent like hers, you make use of it just as fast as you can, and she did. The eight-year-old Annie took it upon herself to provide food for her family, who now leased a smaller farm. She reached for her deceased father's Kentucky rifle hanging above the fireplace, rested the barrel on the porch railing, and shot her first small game, a squirrel. I was eight years old when I took my first shot, and I still consider it one of the best shots I ever made, Annie Oakley. I guess the love of a gun, she recalled, must have been born in me. In spite of Annie's efforts, her family's financial situation worsened, forcing her mother to place the children with friends and neighbors. Ten-year-old Annie moved into a shelter for the destitute. Here she learned to sew and embroider, a skill she would practice the rest of her life when she wasn't shooting. Soon she was hired out to work as a live-in helper for a family in a neighboring county. Everyone thought this was going to be an improvement, but it turned out to be absolutely nightmarish situation. She never mentioned their name again in the rest of her life. She referred to them as the wolves. They locked her in closets. They worked her half to death. One day, the farmer's wife, the wolf, Mrs. Wolf, throws her out in the snow because she fell asleep while she's doing some darning. Suddenly, the she-wolf struck me across the ears, threw me out into the deep snow, and locked the door. I had no shoes on. I was slowly freezing to death. So I got down on my knees 
looked toward God's clear sky and tried to pray, but my lips were frozen stiff, and there was no sound. They told her folks, in fact, they told her mother that she didn't want to go home. And they told her that uh, her mother didn't want her back. After three miserable years in 1872, 12-year-old Annie Moses could bear it no more. She ran away, slipped into a crowded railroad car, and made her way back home to her mother in Greenville, Ohio. Susan Moses had remarried, but the family was still desperately poor, and a mortgage loomed over their heads. Instead of going to school, Annie taught herself to shoot. With her father's old cap and ball rifle, she headed for the woods to hunt. There, in what she called the fairy places, she began her lifelong love for the great outdoors. Annie preferred moving targets to sitting ones. It gave them a fair chance, she reasoned, and made me quick of eye and hand. Soon she was selling hampers of quail to Katzenberger's general store in Greenville. Young Annie was now the family breadwinner, earning a living with her gun. She was a market hunter and turning a very nice profit. Certainly not something that was at all appropriate for a woman to be doing in that time and place. Eventually, she saved up enough money to pay off the $200 mortgage on the family farm. And her prowess with the shotgun was becoming known around Greenville. Annie wasn't just good for a girl, she was good for anybody. Annie was exceptionally good. Her father had given her instructions. He was the one that told her always shoot game through the head so that you didn't spoil the meat. By her late teens, Annie had won so many turkey shoots that she was barred from entering them. In the 1870s, shooting well was an important skill for a man, and shooting contests were a favorite spectator sport. Sharpshooters traveled the country, betting on their ability to perform feats of marksmanship and challenging all comers. Shooting was of such immense uh, popularity that there were professionals. Doc Carver, an evil spirit of the plains is what he was called. Captain Bogardus, who eventually had four sons who traveled with him. And people were flocking to see shooters like this. One such shooter was Frank Butler an Irish immigrant in his mid-twenties. Butler was just starting to make a name for himself on the vaudeville circuit. He was passing through southern Ohio one fall, claiming he could outshoot anyone around. And when we come back, we're going to continue with this story of Annie Oakley, who died on this day in history in 1926. More after these messages. American stories and we're talking about the life of Annie Oakley 
sharpshooter, legend, and pioneer in so many ways. And if you've seen the Broadway musical Andy Get Your Gun, you kind of sort of know the story. But this is, as Paul Harvey liked to say, the rest of the story. We now return to where we left off with this world-class female shooter and a world-class shooter, Frank Butler, who was passing through Southern Ohio, claiming he could outshoot, well, anybody. Frank is staying in a hotel in Cincinnati, and he starts talking with a bunch of farmers. The farmers say, hey, we have someone in our county who's a really good shot, and we're going to bet 100 bucks that this person can beat you. Butler laughed, but he needed the money. The match was on. Frank Butler, this already professional shootist, shows up for this match with hundreds of people watching. And who is it that uh, comes as his opponent but a a 15-year-old girl who was only uh, five feet tall and weighed 100 pounds? Butler recalled. I almost dropped dead when a little slim girl in short dresses stepped out to the mark with me. I was a beaten man the moment she appeared. Right then and there, I decided if I could get that girl, I would do it. Frank Butler, 1924. They shot evenly for 25, for 24 birds, and on the 25th bird, he missed. Uh, but he was a very gracious loser. He, uh, he thanked her for the match, complimented her on her skill, and then courted her for a year. <laughs> There's a charming little girl She's many miles from here. She's a loving little fairy, yet fall in love to see her. Her presence would remind you of an angel in the skies. And you bet I love this little girl with the raindrops in her eyes. Frank Butler, 1881. He was in his 20s when they met. She was 15, and yet within a year, they were married. He made himself appear safe to her. He clearly admired her. He sparked and courted her, as few of us have ever been sparked or courted, and every one of us would like to be, by someone. And she was lucky to find him, and I think he knew he was lucky to find her. For the next six years, however, while Butler and his shooting partner John Graham performed on the vaudeville circuit, Annie stayed in the background. That was about to change. The story is that Butler's partner, a fellow named Graham, was ill, and she was called up as a member of the audience and was so obviously good at it and so charming and such a novelty to the audience that Graham was never heard of again. At some time, she adopted the name Oakley as a stage name, and nobody knows why, and uh, Butler and Oakley became a shooting sensation. From that day to this, I have not competed with her in public shooting. She outclassed me. Frank Butler, 1925. When the shooting team of Butler and Oakley hit the road, traveling entertainment was in its heyday. Circuses, theater companies, and vaudeville acts traveled the country, playing venues from outdoor arenas to smoky saloons. For Annie and Frank, it was an exhausting life of noisy train rides seedy hotels, and one-night stands. Their shooting act might be sandwiched in between a bawdy songstress and a scantily clad acrobat. Variety was a largely male-oriented form of entertainment. They 
there was a great deal of double entendre in comedy. Uh, there were suggestive lyrics in songs. Uh, and there was a good deal of semi-nudity. The acts could be a tad salacious. It was the Victorian age. Annie Oakley, the Christian girl from Ohio, feared being thought a loose woman. She resolved to set herself apart, both in manner and in dress. She began wearing an outfit that completely covered her body. A calf-length skirt, long sleeves and leggings, and a hat that sparkled with a silver star. Her look became her trademark, and this costume, though distinctive and eye-catching, was as modest as Annie's attitude towards her talent. She made her own costumes. That was very important to her. It was part of her desire to control her self-presentation. She could move easily in them, and yet she looked, uh, she looked respectable. She looked childlike. The women in the West uh, were just like the men, entrepreneurial, courageous, bold, adventurous, intelligent. The West really selected and filtered people. The women had to be all those things the men were in spades because they were doing all the same things the men were doing and lacking the same degree of physical prowess uh, that the men had. And the women in the West were the very uh, best that America had to offer. Frank soon realized that Annie was the main attraction of Butler and Oakley. In a remarkable reversal of 19th century roles, Frank Butler became Annie Oakley's assistant. I think Frank Butler understood that she had a kind of star quality that he didn't want to overshadow it. And Frank Butler didn't have a problem with that. I think he adored her. I think he also was a savvy businessman who understood that she was pretty, she was ladylike, she was petite. She would do what needed to be done to make that rise to the top. And he didn't want to get in her way. As a matter of fact, he understood that for the two of them, the best thing possible was for to let her take the lead. In 1884, Butler and Oakley landed a 40-week job with Sells Brothers Circus, one of the biggest traveling shows in the country. Finally, they had steady work with a clean, family-oriented show. But circus life was hard and the pay unreliable. When the season ended in New Orleans that December, it looked as if Frank and Annie would have to go back to a life of one-night stands and unsavory characters. When the circus season is ending, the very week that Buffalo Bill's Wild West comes to New Orleans, and it's like, wow, the circus is ending, we need a job, so they ask Cody if they can come on with the show. To Annie, it was a dream job. Buffalo Bill's Wild West show was a lavish historical pageant, part melodrama, part circus, part rodeo. And it featured the finest performers in the country, it offered a taste of life on the old frontier to an America that was rapidly industrializing. In the crowded urban centers of the East, people flocked to Buffalo Bill's show, eager for a glimpse of the Wild West. This spectacle was the forerunner of Western movies and TV programs. The 
whole world was fascinated with the West. And as it was becoming settled, those elements that were seen as the foundation of, uh, of America's uniqueness, um, the rugged individualism and um, the adventure and the conflict with Indians and with, um, and with Buffalo seemed to be coming to an end. Uh, Buffalo Bill was a representative, a living representative of that story, of that adventure. And it's that adventure that he put into his Wild West show. saw the real stagecoach, they saw real soldiers, they saw real Indians and cowboys. There were horses, there were steer, there were live buffalo. It was into this roiling microcosm of the Wild West that Annie Oakley, the little girl from Ohio, first stepped in April 1885. Cody placed her low on the bill but she soon became an audience favorite. Her 10-minute program combined Frank's vaudeville experience with her talents as a sharpshooter athlete and actress. The result distinguished her from other shooters. Annie didn't just aim a gun and fire, she performed. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, Annie Oakley's story, and as always, are this days in history are brought to us by the folks at Hillsdale College. A great place to study all the things that matter in life, philosophy, history, the arts. And of course, if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will get to you. Go to hillsdale.edu and check out all of their terrific online courses. When we come back, the rest of this story, the rest of the story of Annie Oakley. This is Our American Stories. Our American Stories, The Life of Annie Oakley, our This Day in History segment. And when we left off, we found out that Annie was just very blessed and very lucky to have someone like Frank Butler, who recognized her talents, got out of the way, and just supported her. My goodness, even today that's hard to find. But back then, my goodness, practically impossible. Let's continue with this great story. Ladies and gentlemen, She tripped into the arena. She didn't walk in. She blew kisses. She waved. She was like animated, alive, like this sweet person, but with this big bang gun. She starts off slow, one ball, two balls. Glass balls, which when they're hit, uh, they explode and feathers uh, fly out. Frank would toss up one and then two at a time and then three at a time. 
Then Annie Oakley would toss them up herself. She'd toss two or three or four target balls in the air, grab a shotgun, shoot two, grab another, shoot two more. And she could hit all three before any one of them would reach the ground. And then she'd go to six. gets faster and faster and faster and faster until, you know, it's just like boom, boom. Things are just uh, being broken all around. She could shoot with her left hand, with her right hand. She, like, turns her gun upside down or sideways or sighting in the mirror. One of her favorite tricks was to have Frank hold a, a playing card up and she could uh, either shoot through the heart when it was flat against her or if it was held sideways, she could split the card in two, which is a pretty amazing shot. Occasionally she'd miss a shot on purpose and then she'd kind of pout and this was part of the act because she, she could always hit the target. She was somebody who never missed. I think it's an innate skill. She said, you know, nobody ever taught me to shoot. I think it was just a love of a gun was just born in me. It was an instinct and a skill and an ability that only persons who have phenomenal vision have a wonderful sense of timing, who have hand-to-eye coordination, who have good balance and who are really very athletic because a really good shot has to be a really good athlete. Once Annie's act started getting rave reviews, Cody quickly moved her to the top of the bill. That season, 150,000 people in 40 cities across America saw something entirely new. A woman who could shoot as well as any man while conveying a youthful innocence that, whether Annie realized it or not, was sexy. It was the stuff of stardom. She was this really uh, remarkable, uh, remarkable uh, shot. Uh, but what makes her especially interesting is that she was able to combine that with, a, uh, with an image, with a kind of a vision of American womanhood that was provocative, but that many people felt comfortable with. One reviewer wrote, She handles a shotgun with an easy familiarity that causes the men to marvel and the women to assume airs of contented superiority. Springfield, Massachusetts, Republican, 1897. She had some sort of magnetism that, uh, that can only come from within. In private, she was quiet and reserved, but in public, she could reach the masses. Annie Oakley's celebrity grew when the Wild West spent the summer of 1886 in an arena on Staten Island. Half a million people sailed past the new Statue of Liberty, then rode on special trains straight to the Wild West. It was the most popular attraction ever seen in New York, and Annie was now becoming as famous as Buffalo Bill himself. Frank became Annie's press agent, playing on the deep fascination Easterners had with the Old West. He advertised his Ohio-born wife as the girl of the Western Plains. And he never tired of telling the story of the night Chief Sitting Bull, the old Sioux warrior, asked if he could adopt Annie, after watching her shoot the Ace of Hearts out of a card at 30 paces. When Sitting Bull first saw she had these amazing abilities, you know, to, uh, to handle a rifle and her keen eyesight, then obviously she had some endowed power of some sort that he recognized immediately. 
when Indian people look at such individuals that have been empowered like that, then we have the greatest respect. Sitting Bull christened his new daughter, Little Sure Shot. For a time, he toured with Annie in Buffalo Bill's show, but the great chief soon left, saying he had grown sick of the noises and the multitudes of men. When Buffalo Bill's Wild West opened in Madison Square Garden in the fall of 1886, Little Sure Shot became the darling of Manhattan. She performed before 6,000 people, many in evening dress. The mistreated, half-starved little girl from Ohio had become an icon of the American West. It was probably never a woman in the history of the United States who was better equipped to take up the challenge of creating a legend, of creating a myth of the Western woman, and then embodying that myth with the kind of ladylike demeanor that would make her acceptable. It is a remarkable creation in American legend. In March 1887, Cody's Wild West troop sailed from New York Harbor, bound for London, to perform at Queen Victoria's Golden Jubilee. Their ship was a veritable Noah's Ark. The hold was packed with horses, buffalo, elk, and mules. Dozens of Native Americans huddled together, bracing for the first ocean voyage of their lives. Clustered in the bow were Buffalo Bill, Annie, and Frank but also Cody's new discovery. 15-year-old Lillian Smith, a sharpshooting sensation from California. Lillian Smith was an expert with a rifle, so much so that Cody himself had said he would pay $10,000 to anybody who beat Lillian Smith at rifle shooting. She and Annie couldn't have been more different. Whereas Annie was modest, ladylike, and reserved, Lillian flaunted her ample figure and liked to brag. Even before they reached London, Lillian had been boasting. Now that I'm with the Wild West, she declared, Annie Oakley is done for. Lillian Smith tended to speak very coarsely, and she was uh, kind of rakish. She liked to hang around with the cowboys. And she had this bodice that said, champion rifle shot of the world. It was clear that the Wild West wouldn't be big enough for both of them. Lillian Smith really shows how competitive Annie is. She's worried because Lillian's 15 years old, Annie is 26 now. Suddenly, when you start reading the press releases, Annie becomes younger than she has been. She now starts telling people she's born in 1866. Now she's 20 and she's more, she can compete a little easier with this new girl in the Wild West show. She's practical, she does what she needs to survive. On May 9, 1887, when the Wild West show opened in London, Oakley and Smith were given equal billing. 10,000 eager spectators clamored to get in. The crush and fight and struggle to reach the gates was something terrific, reported the London Evening News. In attendance were leading British intellectuals, such as playwright Oscar Wilde and many of the crowned heads of Europe. Annie particularly was a figure that Europeans welcomed because on the one hand she represented the, the wild western girl 
but at the same time, she was a Victorian woman who was there, after all, to meet the woman who created the Victorian era. And when we come back, the final segment in this hour-long segment on the life of Annie Oakley. Imagine that. She's in London, an international superstar, and folks like Oscar Wilde are crashing in to see her. More after these moments. This is Our American Stories. This day in history, the life of Annie Oakley. This is Our American Stories, and now our final segment on the life of Annie Oakley. Let's pick up where we left off. The most important shooting event in England was the annual rifle competition at Wimbledon, and the big-name American shooters were invited to compete. Lillian Smith was the first to arrive. She shot poorly and left in a huff. The next day... Annie Oakley appeared. Annie does great, and she does it with a rifle. And Lillian's supposed to be the rifle expert. Annie's the shotgun shooter. So she has upstaged Lillian Smith, kind of beaten her at her own game. When a distinguished sports editor in attendance praised Annie's ladylike bearing above her shooting, she considered it the best compliment she ever received. Whether it was over Lillian or Annie's rocky relationship with Buffalo Bill, in late October, the London Evening News printed a stunning announcement. Annie Oakley would sever her connection with the Wild West voluntarily, following their final London performance that very evening. Two years passed. Then in February 1889, much to Annie's surprise, Buffalo Bill was planning a trip to Paris and wanted her back. They needed her. They needed her more than they thought they needed her. And so whatever rift there was is mended. And interestingly, Lillian Smith does not go to Paris. I mean, we don't know, but it would make sense that maybe that was part of the bargain. I'll come back if Lillian goes. Over 30 million people came to the Paris Exposition of 1889. Within sight of the newly erected Eiffel Tower, Buffalo Bill's Wild West played to overflow crowds night after night. On opening night, when Annie made her entrance, she noticed hired clappers. I want honest applause or none at all, she insisted. Annie Oakley was soon the talk of Paris the French president offered her a commission in the army. When a French duke proposed marriage, Annie literally shot him down, putting a bullet through his portrait. Prince Wilhelm of Prussia was so impressed by Annie's skill that he insisted on participating in her act. He lit a cigarette. From 30 paces, Annie shot it away. If my aim had been poorer, she later said, I might have averted the Great War. And the King of Senegal tried to buy her for 100,000 francs to destroy the vicious lions that devastate my country's villages, he said. 
1893, the World's Fair glowed with a new marvel, electric light, and showcased another, Thomas Edison's kinetoscope, a primitive device for viewing movies. In 1894, Edison invited Annie and Frank to his New Jersey studio for a test of his movie camera. In dim, smoky images, Edison's camera managed to capture Annie's performance. But the invention also signaled the end of the Wild West shows. By the early 1900s, movies would become the main source of Western entertainment. But for the rest of the 1890s, Annie Oakley and Buffalo Bill were as popular as ever. Then, at 42 years of age, and from out of nowhere, on August 11, 1903, headlines screamed of her downfall. William Randolph Hearst's Chicago newspapers reported that Oakley had stolen a pair of men's pants to buy cocaine. Annie Oakley, the most famous rifle shot in the world, lies today in a cell at the Harrison Street Station for stealing the trousers of a Negro in order to buy cocaine. Chicago American, August 11th, 1903. Well, of course, it wasn't true. She was so outraged. It so went contrary to her character that she sued against every newspaper that had run that story. Uh, and she won in virtually all of them. Hearst had to pay her $27,000, but most of the awards were much smaller. After expenses, she actually lost money over the course of her six-year campaign. But Annie Oakley never left the public eye. She used her celebrity to encourage women to be physically fit and taught thousands to shoot. Throughout her career, she appeared at gun clubs, defeating male opponents who doubted her skill, then taught their wives how to shoot. It was her personal crusade. I want to see women rise superior to that old-fashioned terror of firearms. I would like to see every woman know how to handle them, as naturally as they know how to handle babies. She was a very early advocate of women's use of firearms for self-defense. She believed that it was thoroughly appropriate for a one woman to have a, a, a gun at her bedside. And she also argued that women, especially if they had to be out and about alone, ought to think seriously about carrying firearms for self-protection. This is when she starts sounding like a feminist. You know, I think women should have the right to protect themselves and carry a gun. And she even appears in the Cincinnati newspaper article showing how to hide your gun under an umbrella so no one will know you have it. And then if someone attacks you, you can pull it out. Annie never asked for a cent from her 15,000-plus pupils. She would be repaid, she said, if the women became shooting enthusiasts. They did. One, a proper Bostonian, coolly held a robber at bay until the police came to arrest him. She credited Annie for her success. She felt it was very important for women to be able to conduct themselves without fear in a man's world. And she took steps to teach them. As I have taught over 15,000 women how to shoot, I modestly feel that I have some right to speak with assurance on this subject. Individual for individual, women shoot as well as men. 
Annie Oakley, 1926. Even in retirement, Oakley walked a fine line between being the powerful, self-sufficient woman and the refined Victorian lady. Annie had once offered to lead a company of 50 lady sharpshooters to fight in World War I. But for the most part, she left politics to men. Annie Oakley didn't even think women should be allowed to vote. Although she did not espouse women's suffrage and she didn't talk about all of the issues that were important to the so-called new women of her time, arguably Annie was living a lot of the values that her feminist sisters were arguing for. Perhaps she didn't see herself as needing feminism to achieve what she had been able to achieve. Then, on November 3rd, 1926, Annie Oakley died at home in her sleep. She was 66 years old. 18 days later, Frank too was gone. They were buried beside each other in Greenville, Ohio. Not far from the ferry places, she roamed as a little girl with rifle in hand. Will Rogers, who had visited Annie just months before her death, penned a newspaper story about his fellow Western performer that could have served as her eulogy. She is a greater character than she was a rifle shot. Annie Oakley's name, her lovable traits, her thoughtful consideration of others, will live as a mark for any woman to shoot at. There's never been anybody like Annie Oakley. There's never been somebody who had both the power of the gun and this power of a kind of sweetness and purity that makes her safe even though she's holding that gun in her hand. From movies, musicals, and television shows to women's self-defense classes, the legend of Annie Oakley and the life of Phoebe Ann Moses reflect the qualities that best define the American character. And great job as always, Greg. The life of Annie Oakley, again, she died on this day in history in 1926. And it is a classic Western story, and we love those stories. In fact, we featured many of them from Phil Anchich's book as well. And go to our website and catch some of them. And they range from... My goodness, the Levi Strauss story alone uh, is, is worth taking a listen to. Go to our, our American network, and up on the browser, you'll see this day in history. Snap it down and take a listen. And as always, our This Days in Histories are brought to us by the folks at Hillsdale College, a great place to study all the things that matter in life, from philosophy to education to the arts to the sciences. And if you can't get to Hillsdale... Hillsdale can get to you. Go to hillsdale.edu and you can find so many of their great education series and classes. The Constitution 101 is about as good as you can get. It's 10 hours. Sit down with the family and over a summer, over a weekend, over Christmas break, or just when you have some spare time, take a listen. Much better than anything you'll catch on TV. And also the 10-hour course on C.S. Lewis is dazzling. Again, this is Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to catch all that we do. The life of Annie Oakley. This day in history, she died in 1926.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, where we love to bring you stories about everything, love and death, sports, history, the arts, and sometimes just random writing that's out there, and we'll ask uh, the person who wrote the piece to record it for us so you can hear from them directly, and we just get out of the way. And we ran across a piece that we found fascinating. The title was called, Are We Still Bowling Alone? Which is a reference to Robert Putnam's classic book, Bowling Alone, about the decline of social capital in America and Americans doing things with one another, which we used to do so much of back in the day and are doing less and less of. And that's things like the VFW, the Rotary Club, the Poker, Bridge. And the essay was written by Aaron Wren, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. He graciously recorded it for us. Let's take a listen. Are we still bowling alone? When I was growing up in a small town in rural Indiana, many people left their doors unlocked and their keys in their cars. This was in the 1970s and 1980s, hardly ancient history. Everybody knew everybody to some extent, and there was a sense of strong community solidarity. Kids knew that if they got in trouble at school, there would be even more trouble when they got home. There were no jobs people weren't willing to do. A classmate's mother was a cook in the school cafeteria. I bagged groceries. It was hardly idyllic, but to a great extent it did resemble the traditional stereotypes of small-town life. On the other hand, much of rural living in that area was very basic. Water service, trash collection, and cable TV were not available. We had to rely on wells or cisterns, burned our trash in a 55-gallon drum, and were limited to the handful of TV channels we could bring in through our aerials. We shared a party-line telephone with our neighbors, and the road I lived on was gravel when I first moved there. But while life in these places was poor and technologically rudimentary, it was socially intact and cohesive. Now, that's inverted. Although the comforts of everyday life are in many ways better, social conditions have collapsed for many. What has happened calls into question the idea that social well-being is tightly linked to economic health, that just providing more and better jobs can by itself turn broken families and communities around. Today, people in my hometown can enjoy many of the amenities urbanites do. The Internet gives people access to the world, to any major news site, to the endless selections from Amazon, iTunes, or Netflix. Satellite TV provides hundreds of channels. There are more and better stores and restaurants than ever. When I was a kid, we didn't have air conditioning at home or at school. It's now the norm at both. And thanks to casino money, my county now has new schools, freshly paved roads, and new fire stations and libraries. It's easy commuting distance to a major city, and the county's population is actually growing. Not all rural communities are so fortunate fiscally but most of them have experienced many of the same quality of life improvements. Yet the county where I grew up also recently had the dubious distinction of having more meth lab bus than any other rural county in the state. Many families, including my own, have struggled with the challenges of drug addiction. Doors and cars are now locked tight. An older couple was brutally murdered by two teens a few years ago. The out-of-wedlock birth rate is at 36%. My father, the retired superintendent of a local quarry, 
which paid a starting wage of $15 an hour plus full benefits and profit sharing, frequently complained about his struggles to find minimally qualified workers. There are a number of people in the national media who make the argument that things aren't so bad. That if you look at the numbers, this idea that things are horrible in much of America just isn't true. It's easy for me to believe this is actually the case in a quantitative sense. But man does not live by bread alone. When you have an iPhone, but your community is disintegrating socially, it's not hard to see why people think things have taken a turn for the worse. A lot of the focus in Rust Belt and rural communities is on the economy, and rightly so. There are economic challenges that do need to be addressed, but in many cases the real problems are more than economic. They are social and perhaps even spiritual in a broad sense, a despair that has destroyed so many lives. Some of this decline was captured in Robert Putnam's 2000 book, Bowling Alone, The Collapse and Revival of American Community and more recently in a report commissioned by U.S. Senator Mike Lee, vice chairman of the Congressional Joint Economic Committee. Called What We Do Together, the report tracks the striking decline in many measures of social capital in the country since 1970. The share of three- and four-year-olds being cared for by a parent during the day, for example, dropped from 80% to less than half. Births from unwed mothers grew from 11% to 40%. The number of adults who think most people can be trusted dropped from 46% to 31%. People are spending less time socializing with neighbors. Participation in religion and in civic life has declined. These forms of social capital once sustained a sense of community during hard times and through the ups and downs of life. Today, many of these supports, family, neighbors, churches, and social institutions, are much weaker. Government can provide financial assistance to people in need, but it can't replace these human connections that are critical when we've just taken a punch to the gut. The America of the 1970s and 80s is dead and gone. It can't be recreated, but America must find a way to rebuild its social capital if it hopes to change the trajectory of so many struggling people and places. Economic development is not enough. And thank you for that, Aaron. And it's so true, and we'd like to tell these stories here on Our American Story, and that's sort of a story of his own life and what life is like in the very same area he now lives and lots more material things there present. And we all know this. We know this deeply, and maybe we just don't know it, know it. But less church attendance, where is that local VFW now? Or the Knights of Columbus, where I grew up in the the Northeast. The Knights of Columbus were everywhere. You didn't have to be a Catholic to go to the Knights of Columbus. You just went. There was a bar, there was open cold cuts and everybody would eat and you'd just laugh and play and leave a little money at the door. This is Lee Habib, Aaron Wren's story, social capital, small town America and heck, it's big town America too. It's that part of our country that makes the country hum and it ain't the money folks, it's the people. Again, this is Our American Stories.
is Lee Habib with Our American Stories. And that was a dog sneezing, if you can believe it. One more time, Jesse. And that was BarkPost.com's selection from the number one viral dog video of 2015. And we played this delicious sneeze, and I'm sure all of you have a different sneezing dog sound in your life. And I have a I have a very loud pug when it comes to snoring, and I am going to record that just for this guest the next time she joins us. And it's Jory Larson now joins us, and she is well, she's the key person behind BarkPost.com. Thanks for joining us, Jory. Hi, thank you for having me. You know, many people believe dogs are people. I do. I mean, they are members of my family. I want to play another short clip for you. This time of dog owners treating their now famous dog, Mishka, with over 100 million YouTube views like a human. Mishka, I love you. I love you. I love you. Good girl. I love you. Jory, in your case, you gave your dog an actual IQ test. And it That's didn't go right. and it didn't did. go well. Talk about that. Yeah, sure. So um Bark Post, one of my editors came to me and said, you know, we, we have this idea for um an at home intelligence test that you can administer to your dog and then just write about the results and see what happens. So um I followed along. There's an internet doggy IQ test that you can follow along at home. Um, I, I took an afternoon and I had my husband photograph it so we could have some pictures for the post. And I kind of went through, um, I think it's about four to five steps. You can do it in less than an hour. Um, and I was really curious to see what Winnie's IQ would be. Like any dog owner, um, you know, you think your dog is the smartest dog in the world at times. And of course, they also have their derpy moments is how we like to refer to it when they're yeah. uh, behaving like less than an Einstein. But um, the test actually it was really interesting to see how Winnie reacted. I, I really couldn't have predicted how she was going to perform. And your, your Winnie, your dear Winnie, is a two-year-old Australian shepherd, right? That's right. Yeah, it, it's a breed that's pretty, pretty known for their intelligence, um, right up there with Border Collies. At least that's what Australian shepherd owners always kind of... Uh, Maybe it's a myth that we're circulating around that they're as smart as Border Collies. Um, but, yeah, so she's, she rings a bell when she tells us she has to go to the bathroom outside, which I always thought was kind of uh, a, signi- you know, a signifier of intelligence. Um, so I was really curious to see how she would perform. Well, I can tell you this. I have uh, pugs, and I don't even need to give them an IQ test, Jory, because these dogs, they're just not right. They're not particularly smart, and they cannot be taught. I have given up trying to train them. I've owned them my whole life, and anyone who owns pugs knows what I'm talking about. Talk about your, your... You said at one point, you said about your dog, I swear she understands long strings of English, and she rings a bell to tell us when she has to go potty. That's pretty damn smart, Jory. Yeah, yeah. So we actually... Um, I think we got this idea from a book that we read when she was a puppy. We hung um, a bell next to the door, and we started when we got her when she was 10 weeks old. So we started right away. Every time we took her out to go to the bathroom, we would ring the bell. So she would start to associate that feeling of having to go to the bathroom with ringing the bell. And she got it within two weeks. So she was, she was less than three months old. She would nudge the bells with her nose, and then we would know to let her out. 
Right. So we thought that was pretty cool and pretty smart. Yeah, it is pretty cool, and it's, it's darn smart. And again, I, I'm getting jealous listening to you describe the intelligence of your dog, because ours are, are so silly, they, they don't even know where to poop. I mean, they, they get confused about, like, pooping. So tell us about the test you did with, well, a, that involved a blanket and your dog's head. Talk about that test. Yes. So, so the first step in the intelligence test is to toss a blanket over your dog's head in, in one swift motion. And then you're going to start your stopwatch, and you're going to time how long it takes for them to kind of shake off this towel off their head. Right. So when we first threw it on, she she did nothing. She froze. And so I started to think, uh-oh, this, this might be a red flag. Um, and I, I think what it was is she might have been a little frightened by, you know, what, what are mom and dad doing to me right now? Um, so she did wiggle off, and she shimmied it off in 19 seconds. So that earned her three points on on the scale. And if it took them... You know, 31 seconds to two minutes, okay, you only get two points. Um, if you try but you don't get the blanket off at all in two minutes, the dog only gets a point. And if the dog doesn't attempt to do anything, just lets the blanket kind of sit there until you come to their rescue, <laughs> right. they get zero points. They get zero. Again, my pugs, yeah. I know they're a zero. Jory, I don't, I don't have to run them through this test. Talk about talk about some other things that you're you're you're, you're testing in, in this in this space. What are some of the other things you look at in terms of dog sure. intelligence? So we also there's another um, test where you're kind of seeing if they can understand almost object permanence. So you place a high value treat, so whether it's salami or string cheese or whatever your dog you know really wants to get at, you cut up a little piece and you put it underneath. Um, like a dish towel, a regular towel, a blanket, and you make sure that they see that it goes under there. Right. And then the whole point is to see, start the stopwatch again, how long it takes your dog to actually get the towel off the treat. Um, and this is where our Winnie had her first setback. She couldn't do it. She could not get the towel off the treat. And at one point, she was actually kind of trying to suck the string cheese through the towel. <laughs> it's like right. she, she gave up totally. She kind of resigned herself to the fact that she wasn't going to actually get to chew the string cheese, but maybe she could slurp up some flavor. So that was a, that was a minor setback. Yeah, I'm not sure how my, my producers would do on that one, though, either. I mean, I don't think they do well either. They just try to eat through the towel. Any other any other tests, Jory? Uh, t- talk about some other parts of this intelligence test. Uh, this is fascinating. Yeah, sure. So um, the third the third step in this test, you um, it's it involves a treat again. So you're going to cut up another piece of your high value treat, and you make a little wooden plank, you know, maybe a foot off the ground, um, supported. We did books on either end, and we place the treat underneath the wooden plank, far enough away that your dog can't quite reach it with. Her, her muzzle alone, she has to use a paw. That's, this is sort of testing, you know, do they have the wherewithal to, to use other tools to get to the treat besides their, their snout? And so you cover it with a towel and you start the stopwatch again and uh, you time it to see how long it takes them to actually paw the towel out, you know, get off the towel and get to the treat. Um, and so with Winnie again, she, she pawed at the towel. She was able to pull it from underneath the plank. She understood that she had to use her paws, but she could not, she, she never understood the concept of actually getting the towel off of the treat. So she started to chew this time we used a milk bone. She started to chew the milk bone through the towel and actually she put a hole in my brand new towel, which I should never have used for this (laughs) test. Yeah, probably not. Maybe you get a bad score on the owner test there, Jory. 
<laughs> right. And I will say, I think, you know, with any dog that you're testing, I think Winnie was a little thrown by all, all of these tricks and I think she was kind of suspicious. So if you do this test at home, you have to take it with a grain of salt because your dog might just be kind of thinking, what's up with mom and dad? I'm not going to perform. Right. The heck with them. What are they, what are they doing to me? And this is, uh, this is their goofy way of entertaining themselves. I'm not on for this. You know what I'd love, Joey? Send us some material periodically. We are fascinated with dogs and human beings. And I think as people are getting lonelier, too, as people are having smaller families, uh, the pet, I think, is playing a more central part of human beings' lives. And I don't know if you, you agree with that. Maybe just a quick second on that. Do you, do you think that's what's happening in part, Joey? Absolutely. I, I really do. I, I feel like dogs and, and cats probably too, but dogs are our specialty at Bark Post. Um, I, I feel like more and more people are treating them like members of the family. Um, you know, you see whether it's a high-end doggy daycare or, you know, you, you don't have a dog here anymore. You take them to a nice boarding place, a nice kennel. It's, I feel like everything um, is kind of going a little bit more of the luxury route when it comes to pet ownership. Um, yeah, and it does feel like maybe, maybe there is something that there that the families are getting a little bit smaller, people are living further away from their family members, so it's nice when you come home after a long day, you open the door, and, you know, your dog is always going to be so happy to see you, and, and it makes you feel like home where, well, whenever you're with your dog. I think so. that's what's going on, too, and I know that my wife is now spending more on meals for my dogs with their fancy food than me, and so... I, and, I, and I don't care. I, I've, I've, I'm done fighting it, Joey. The dog now is more important than me, and I'm fine with it. Joey jo Larson, thanks for joining us. Keep sending us stuff. We'd love to hear more from you, from Bark Post, and from the animals. Thanks so much for joining sounds, us. Sounds great. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And Jesse's just having so much fun playing with the dials and playing the dog sounds. And we love animals here on Our American Stories. And we love sports. We love love. And we love music. And when we come back, more after these messages. our American stories. When you hear that music, it means it's time for another edition of Steve Goldberg's Daydreams. You heard that right. We're going to hear a dude's daydreams. And not just any dude. Steve is the former chairman of the sociology department at City College, and he's the foremost expert on patriarchy and a dude who daydreams a lot. By the way, he's the kind of teacher, he's retired now, who no matter what he would have taught, you would have taken his class because he's just interesting. And here is Steve Goldberg's latest talentless daydream. I'm a 21-year-old uh, and one of the uh, only eight recent college graduates who have been chosen to spend six months in the White House, uh, shadowing and occasionally meeting with the president. This is clearly about as desirable a, a post-college position as one can get, and maybe even a guarantee of a marvelous job as soon as uh, the six months are completed. 
We are in our first meeting with the president. No one wants to screw up. After about 10 minutes, in which the president uh, speaks in general about his busy day, he asks if anyone has anything to say. No one really wants to be speaking, um, though, though there are a few mumbled uh, comments, and, and, uh, uh, and not to, they weren't too well thought out, um, and uh, uh, the meeting is about to break up. Then... I can't imagine what got into me. Maybe it had to do with having a brother who was a Marine in Afghanistan. I say, sir, I have a suggestion. Uh, A suggestion. The others gasp, but at this point, I have no way out, uh, much as I would have preferred to be in Afghanistan. I say, sir, um, people must often say to you, sir, it's my great honor to meet you. After all, you are the president of the United States, and they acknowledge uh, that that is pretty impressive compared to whatever it is they do. Well, now next week you're going to be preparing, uh, presenting the Medal of Honor to a, a Marine who jumped on the uh, live grenade to save a fellow Marine. He jumped on a live grenade to save a fellow Marine. Um, Well, um, it seems to me that compared to this, being president of the United States is pretty small potatoes. So maybe you you should um, say the words others say to you um, when, when you present the medal to the winner. The neg- the, this time, the gasps of the others uh, could be uh, heard in the next room, and they and I figured I might as well start putting on my coat and head for Wendy's to look for work. For about 30 seconds, that seemed like forever, the president looked frighteningly stern and then said, say no more. There was a long pause. Then the president said, consider it done. I took off my coat. <laughs> and there you have it, another Steve Goldberg daydream. And we always appreciate his work. We never know where it's coming from. And now we switch from the sublime to the absolutely beautiful. And it's adoption we're going to talk about next, and especially in November for National Adoption Month. This is another story brought to us by Brave Love a movement that's dedicated to changing the perception of adoption by acknowledging birth moms for their brave decision to place their child for adoption and give them the gift of life. And on their website, bravelove.org, a young lady named Sandra Sharp shared her powerful letter to her birth mother and recorded it for us. Let's take a listen. I was in second grade when my parents told me I was adopted. There were so many questions that I wanted answered, but knew they never will be. There were times when I would look in the mirror, staring at myself, wondering what you might look like. The color of your hair, eyes, and skin, the sound of your laugh, the way you smile, wondered if you thought about me every day. When I was younger, I thought I was a mistake, that that was the only reason you gave me up. I would be in tears, thinking that there was something wrong with me. You placed me outside of a building and left me alone to have some people brought me to an orphanage. I would have hard feelings against you and didn't care about you. All I could think was, why? Why did you leave me? You abandoned me and I felt unwanted. But that was a mistake. 
It dawned on me that if you had kept me, my life would be completely different. I would be in China, speaking a different language, perhaps having a different religion. I wouldn't have the friends I have now. All my experiences with my friends and family wouldn't have even existed. I'm 21 now, and I still have questions. But most importantly, I want to thank you. It must not have been easy to give up your own child, but what you have given me was a family that loves me, cares for me, and new opportunity. Even though we are thousands of miles apart, I feel that you are still a part of me, and a part of that still remains a mystery, but you still have a hold on me nonetheless. Who knows? Maybe I'll go back to China where it all began. Maybe we will eat at the same restaurant and make eye contact across the room, but we'll never know, but we'll never realize who we are looking at. Or maybe we will just know in our hearts and reunite. I have always fantasized about that part. I hope the weather is nice wherever you are, living life well, and maybe even raising some kids of your own. I wish you stay in good health and wish you all the luck in the world. And I just want to tell you, thank you, and I love you. Wow, Sandra Sharp, and that's bravelove.org. A powerful letter to her birth mother, and a beautiful letter. We want to read you one more story from bravelove.org from a woman named Lib, who works at a pregnancy and adoption support center, and wrote about her recent experience with a birth mom. Lib gave us permission to read her story, and Faith brings it to us now. A few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to work with a birth mom throughout her labor, subsequent C-section, and the two days she spent in the hospital with her sweet baby girl. This mother was 19. This was her third child. Her first child had been taken away by Child Protective Services. She was parenting her second child and had just returned from a recovery facility in order to be a better mother. She had made an adoption plan for this third child because she knew this was the best thing. She continually cited that she wanted to do what was right for her unborn child and the child she was currently parenting. Rarely did she mention her own needs and desires. As we sat in the operating room while she had a C-section, I was in there because her family never showed up. I just kept thinking, this is brave. Originally, the birth mom did not want to see her child, but the plans changed. She did want to see her, hold her, love her. She even ended up naming her. As I watched this mom lovingly, gently, with all affection, hold her daughter, feed her, change her diaper, all while knowing that she would have to let her go soon, it was clear. This was love. At the relinquishments, this mother had tears in her eyes because of the love she had for her child. But she also had the courage to offer her children, this baby and her other child, the best life possible. She put her needs and her wants aside because of the genuine love she had for her children. Thinking back, it was so obvious what I had witnessed. This was brave love. And thank you, Faith. And thank you, Lib, for sharing that story with us. And to the folks at bravelove.org, thank you for all you do, connecting so many women and so many people with these stories. They're beautiful stories of sacrifice. And that's always love when sacrifice is involved. It's the ultimate love, of course. We know it when we see it. 
This is Our American Stories, Adoption Stories. We bring them to you all month, every November, National Adoption Month. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love music here on the show, and we love history, and that's why this is our favorite segment, and Jesse brings us This Week in Music History. You shake my nerves and you rattle my brain, too much love drives a man insane, you broke my will, but what a This week in music history, 1957 Sun Records released Great Balls of Fire by Jerry Lee Lewis. The single went on to sell over 5 million copies worldwide and was a number one hit in the UK and number two in the US. It sold over 1 million copies in its first 10 days, making it both one of the best-selling singles in the US as well as one of the world's best-selling singles of all time. And in 1965, The Who released the single My Generation in the UK. People try to put us to death. The song was named the 11th greatest song by Rolling Stone and the 13th on VH1's list of the 100 greatest songs of rock and roll. It reached number two in the UK, making it the highest charting single in their home country, but it only reached number 74 in the States. In 1971, Dwayne Allman of the Allman Brothers Band was killed when he lost control of his motorcycle on a Macon, Georgia street while trying to swerve to avoid a tractor trailer and was thrown from the motorcycle. The motorcycle bounced into the air, landed on Allman, and skidded another 90 feet with Allman pinned underneath. He was just three weeks shy of his 25th birthday. Here's the late Greg Allman, who passed away in 2017, talking about his big brother, Dwayne. My brother was a hell of a guy. He was uh, very intelligent. He did three things. He had his arm around a guitar, his arm around a beautiful lady, or his head in a book. The only time we were apart was when he worked down in, uh, in Muscle Shoals. He played with Aretha and Wilson Pickett and Clarence Carter and uh, was just kicking mucho butt on the guitar. And uh, that's when the idea hit him, man, we gotta put a band together. That's all there is to it. He called me on the phone and he said, man, I got these four guys. I got two drummers and I'm going, oh, train wreck. Two full sets of drums? He says, yeah, but you just, you gotta hear it, you gotta hear it. I said, God, I can almost hear it from here, you know. <laughs> Wake up, mama, turn your lamp down low. Oh, baby. 
Uncle John from your door. In 1983, This Week in Music History, Islands in the Stream gave Dolly Parton and Kenny Rogers a number one in the U.S. singles chart. The song was written by the Bee Gees and co-produced by Barry Gibb. Baby, when I met you, there was peace unknown. I set out to get you with a fine-tooth comb. I was soft inside. There was something going Dolly Parton and Kenny Rogers talking candidly about the first time they met. I did your television show, the one with the butterfly. What was it called? Was it Dolly. Called? Dolly. Well, how can I? <laughs> you know, my you memory's I thought it was Dolly. But I remember I did that show, and it was the first time I'd ever really met you. I thought, wow, what a gorgeous lady, and it was oh, it was so sweet. And then from that point on, every time I've seen you, you never disappoint me. So. So this is your lead-in for me to talk then about how handsome yeah. you are, and set, you first on the show. You up. So when you were so first you on my show, you had like brown hair. You weren't. It was only yeah. after you started working with me that you turned gray. <laughs> Some people often say that to me. Did you turn Kenny Gray? Yeah, I, I said, he says it. I did. I think you're. I think you're a big part of the combination there. And born this week in music history, 1939, Grace Slick, vocalist for Jefferson Airplane, Jefferson Starship. She had a 1967 U.S. number 18 single with White Rabbit, a 1987 U.K. and U.S. number one single with Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now. Slick's longevity in the music business helped her to earn a rather unusual distinction, the oldest female vocalist on a Billboard Hot 100 chart topping single. Her record stood for 12 years, but was ultimately broken by Cher, who was 53 in 1999 when Believe hit number one. In 1970, This Week in Music History, Led Zeppelin started a four-week run at number one on the U.S. album chart with Led Zeppelin III, the band's second U.S. chart topper. The opening track was meant to be a light-hearted, humorous song relating their adventures on the road to the Vikings who fought the hordes to conquer new lands. But they weren't known as a funny band, so a lot of the fans took it quite seriously. This week in music history, during a gig in Seattle, Washington, Billy Idol dumped 600 dead fish into Faith No More's dressing room. 
They responded by walking on stage naked during Billy Idol's set. And in 1969, Elvis Presley went number one on the U.S. singles chart with Suspicious Minds, his 18th U.S. number one single. We're caught in a trap. I can't walk out because I love you too much, baby. The song was written and recorded by American songwriter Mark James. After James's recording failed commercially, the song was handed to Elvis, becoming a number one song in '69. Suspicious Minds was the single that returned Presley's career success following his 68 comeback special. It was his 18th and last number one single in the United States. We can't go on together with suspicious minds. And we can build our dreams on suspicious and in 1969, the Beatles scored their 13th U.S. number one album with Abbey Road. Clearance Clearwater Revival released Willie and the Poor Boys, their third studio album of that year. Early in the evening, just about supper time, over by the courthouse, they're starting to unwind. Four kids on the corner, trying to bring you up. Willie picks a tune out and he blows it on the hum. Down on the corner, out in the street. And in 1972, This Week in Music History, Johnny Nash started a three-week run at number one on the U.S. Singles chart with I Can See Clearly Now. I can see clearly now the rain and that's This Week in Music History, for our American stories. I'm Jesse Edwards. I can see all obstacles in my way. I think 